Welcome to 10-Minute Theology, thinking rightly about God, scriptures, and the church. 10 minutes at a time, with Joel Wentz. Welcome back to our journey through yet another very famous biblical story from Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel. And in this series, I'm trying to take these stories seriously as we have them on the page, just like we would take any ancient work of philosophy or literature any ancient stories, just as seriously as we would take any of them, trying not to look down my nose at the Bible um, as the, the, it gets dismissed so frequently today. Um, and I'm doing this because, not just because of my faith commitment as a Christian, that I believe the Bible does have powerful authority in my life, although that is true, also I'm doing it because I just think these stories have a lot to teach us today uh, if we approach them with a respectful posture. So, we're in this third part of the discussion through the Cain and Abel story, and I think I think this will be the last episode on Genesis chapter four. But who knows? There's so much going on here that maybe maybe it'll stretch to four. But I, th- I think this will be the last one. So at the last uh, discussion, we really focused on the the choice Cain had in the moment of his sacrifice not being accepted by God or regarded by God. So listen to that episode definitely if you haven't yet, because that is kind of the beating heart of this story, in my opinion. It's that that's really, really the meat of what's going on here and what this story is about thematically. And it's so relatable. So we ended there with the choice Cain was faced with, the possibility of sin mastering him in this moment of confusion um, and even anger. And we know uh, the choice that he did make was he tricked his brother Abel into going out into a field and brutally and in cold blood, murdered him. This is the first murder in the human story. And not only is it the first murder, but it is exactly the opposite of what God exhorted Cain to do. Cain has been mastered and devoured by the very sin that he was warned would have power over him if he allowed it. Very, very heartbreaking. So what I want to talk about now, I don't want to focus too much on the act of the murder, although obviously it's a huge piece of the story. What I want to look at right now is God's reaction to it. And it's, it's quite interesting because God's reaction is remarkably similar to what actually happened in the previous generation, in Adam and Eve's generation, though that the infraction was very different. But still, God comes to Cain and asks, where is your brother? And he hears the famous reply, am I my brother's keeper? which I think is supposed to sound defensive. So these comments, if you have been tracking with these stories, these comments should be sounding familiar because God once again comes towards the humans, who in this case, the one human who has sinned, who has done wrong, who has transgressed what God wanted the humans to do. God once again comes towards the humans. Cain, God asks a question, just like of Adam and Eve in the garden. Even though God clearly knows what's going on here, right? I mean, no one's really debating that. God still asks and gives Cain an opportunity to own the choice that he made. But, again, like Adam and Eve, we see echoes already. Cain refuses that opportunity, that opportunity to own what happened. And he tries to deflect. Am I my brother's keeper? He deflects, just like his parents did in the garden. When Adam said, well, it's this woman you gave me. And and, and Eve said, well, it's the snake. You know, everyone's deflecting. So he's like his parents. The apple doesn't fall far, I guess, in this case. So in this, and this is the point I want to make here at the outset, in this we already see the passing on of the consequences of Adam and Eve's actions. This is the narrative explanation in the Bible for how sin and chaos begin to work through generations of people to unwind the creative ordering actions of God. 
And the continued conversation between God and Cain is, is quite interesting because we see another curse of the ground, which is also very reminiscent of the curse in the previous chapter, which we've already discussed. I don't have much more to add here right now other than the obvious fact that I've already alluded to is that this is the first murder. This is the first sin of this magnitude. And the connect and because murder is is of a different order, right? Um, the connection between our bodies and the ground is recapitulated, but kind of in a negative way. So if you remember from the very beginning of creation, in, in those podcast episodes, I talked about the connection between our bodies and the dust. And so there's a connection here between our bodies and the ground that's that's repeated, reaffirmed, but it's in a very negative light because of the context of the murder. And somehow the story seems to be saying here, the more we act counter to God's creative ordering purposes for us, the more that we lean into a life of sin and chaos, the choice that Cain had, right? The more we do that, the more things will become difficult. Or in this case, for Cain, who again is the productive farmer, the more the ground is going to resist his work. And this cycle, this punishment curse kind of cycle of leaning against what God wants and it being difficult because we're operating kind of, it's like going against the grain of our design, right? This explains Cain's distress when he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain indicates here by saying this that he realizes the trouble that's ahead of him as he faces the prospect of living a life outside the boundaries of God's creative plan. He will be a wanderer, he'll be a fugitive, he'll be unprotected, which especially is a bleak prospect in the ancient world, which is a culture that we're far removed from, but it's bleak in terms of being unprotected and being a wanderer. And yet here, even in the midst of this, still we get another glimpse of God's graciousness because God places a mark of protection on Cain. It's not exactly clear what this means in a physical sense. Don't get hung up on that. It seems to be some indication of spiritual metaphysical protection. But the point is that God is protecting Cain, even though Cain just acted in complete contradiction to the challenge God placed before him. Just like his parents, Cain has barely finished a blatant act of disobedience to the Creator, which has brought pain and chaos into the creation that God started. And God is already granting him mercy. He says, if anyone kills Cain, they will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And a, another side note, I like to add these little parentheticals of things I find interesting. Who exactly is Cain afraid of, right? Simplistic readings of this story get stuck here because they have, to, if they're simplistic and flat, um, they, which is kind of the reading I inherited when I was a little kid, right? They insist, they have to insist because they're simplistic that no other humans exist yet. Right, And all I'll say to add to that point is that the story is just not concerned with answering scientific genetic questions about human origins. It's just not. Don't let it trip you up. I'm not going to comment much more on that. And don't let it distract you, more importantly, from what the story is focused on, which is the choices that humans are faced with regarding chaos, order, sin, goodness, and life with or without God, inside or outside the boundaries of our Creator. That is what the story is about. So do not get distracted by all this other stuff that can throw up barriers to our, our just our entering the themes and the applications and, and the real relatability of the story. So just a side note there, but um, it's interesting to think, who, who is Cain afraid of? There must be someone else out there for him to be afraid of. Finally, here, we come back to the story and we end the chapter with a short blitz of more generations after Cain. I noted uh, in two episodes ago, I noted the, uh, about generations. 
And to be sure, reading names of, you know, he begot him and who and so and so and so on, on, reading generations and sons and fathers is just not exciting reading. It's not a story per se. But again, the question is, why would the writer include this here? We ought to always ask that question, especially when we're confused. I believe the writer is giving an account for how civilization got going in this ancient context. Because consider the themes, again, of this short story. Cain is the farmer, the producer. He's the one who is exiled. He leaves to build a city, and that actually comports really well with our modern historic understandings of how civilization arose. Because we know, if you do any research, you know that agriculture, farming, preceded urbanization. This is common. And that seems to be part of what is getting captured in this story, even of these generations, because the higher level themes are about destruction, sin, jealousy, rage, etc., all that stuff. Those themes get propagated into human civilization as cities arise, right? And as humans group together in these big, sprawling urban contexts. So the story here is making, one of the many points it's making is that the first murderer and this is this is heavy. The first murderer is also the first city builder. That is not a coincidence. That can't be a coincidence. And just like sin passed through Adam and Eve, chaos, unwinding, desolation, whatever word you want to use, sin, destruction, just like it passed through them into the next generation, it continues to pass through Cain into human communities at large. And this is certainly not a pleasant idea. And it's not flat. It doesn't plateau. It gets worse, right? Adam and Eve's transaction or, or infraction was one thing, but Cain was a murderer. This is, this is worse. This is more bleak. And furthermore, and I'm almost done here, furthermore, we know a few other things. Cain's reputation is, as, is a violent one, or something like it. His reputation is intact throughout these generations because we do get a short poem from his descendant Lamech, or Lamech or Lamech, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. This poem indicates that if Cain was considered violent or fearsome, that reputation pales in comparison to the reputation Lamech has built for himself. It says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech is avenged seventy-sevenfold. That is a stark picture of a spiral of vengeance and violence. And this is so totally applicable to our world today. I mean, just think about the, the violence and destruction of, and wars and bloodshed of the 20th century alone. There is, there, is a, there is a ramping up of violence in humanity. It seems undeniable. This is chaos, or you can say anti-creation, anti-God's creation, that's that force at its worst, as it spirals and gets worse and worse. And the very, very end of this chapter, we have a short note that Adam and Eve bear Seth. So it's not clear how linear this story is. Ancient literature is rarely, if ever, clear and linear in storytelling. It just wasn't a problem at all for timelines to cycle and repeat, which actually is part of why it can be confusing to study. So just know that, but don't let it hang you up too much. But here we get a small glimpse of mercy from God, because even though Adam and Eve disobeyed or were exiled, and think about this, their firstborn murdered their secondborn. Think about that as a parent. They are given another son, Seth. This is the grace of God. And the text says this is when people began to invoke the name of the Lord. This seems to be when ancient Israelite Yahweh worship begins. We're still far, far, far away in time from ritualized worship in temples with priests and sacrifices and such, but Yahweh's name is beginning to be lifted up as the God of what would become Israel through all of this. So, 
I'm going a little long, a little past the 10-minute mark, but let me tie this all together, because in many ways, this is a really chilling chapter, actually. It paints a bleak portrait of how quickly sin spirals into violence, into the worst ends of violence in murder. Can't get much more violent than murder in cold blood. And it also tells how this violence is deeply embedded in the very beginnings of our civilization and our own history as humans in our, in our urban uh, settings. But... In the midst of this, we still catch glimpses of God's mercy and God's willingness to stay, to be faithful to the people God has created. This will be a powerful theme throughout the entire Bible, but it's important to emphasize that its roots are here right in the first few pages of the story. So, what will happen next? Will things get worse? Well, yes. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I suppose they will. But what will God do? How bad does it need to get for God to intervene? How will this creation ordering action that God is clearly devoted to and committed to, how will that activity move forward if humans continue to derail it? And that is where the story goes next. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can check out the podcast page at joelwentz.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at joelthevaliant. And of course, you can subscribe to 10 Minute Theology on iTunes. Take care.